Well, I'm thinking a lot about growth these days, both personally and pastorally. Uh, pastorally, because we're talking about things like spiritual growth, but personally, because this last weekend on Friday, we kind of crossed a pretty major milestone as a family. We launched Jeremiah off to college, and so now I am the only male in my home. <laughs> so so I'm, I'm announcing a support group for those of you who are in this condition. You know what it's like. How many of you uh, launched a college student uh, this weekend? There's a couple of you I saw. Okay, you kind of walked in. Some of you were walking in like, dun, 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 dun. and others of you walked in like, oh, I don't know. It's, 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 just, it's a roller coaster of emotions, isn't it? The drop off is one thing. It's the drive home that, that got me. A roller coaster of emotions. Last night, closing bedroom doors, shutting vents off. I'm not paying for air conditioning. It's not going to be there. So I'm just. <laughs> Just, just saying. So uh, that's right, right? You know what I'm saying? And so, um, you know, and I just uh, I was glad at one level and sad at another, you know, a little cheaper, but my heart hurts. And yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm the kind of person that on a drive like that, I start to think back on, so what, what could I have done differently? And, and that can become kind of a negative navel gazing kind of a thing where you're just thinking, 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 thinking. But at another level, it's important because my parenting isn't over. I still have a wonderful little girl in our home, and she's going to be with us for the next seven years. And so, still have to think about how to parent her, but my season of parenting boys in my home is, is over. As a parent and as a pastor, I've often said, this is what you raise kids for, to leave. That's the goal. And as I think back on our parenting, there's lots of things I wish I could have a do-over on, mistakes that we made, and big ones for that matter. But as I, I think back on what were the things that God seemed to, to bless, the conduits of his grace, if you will? And there's, there's one particular thing that I look back on, and amidst all of the regrets or things I wish I did differently, there's one thing that I'm, I think is really important, and that is I've never, never not neglected, I've, I've never regretted, that's the word, being intentional as it relates to my children. My wife and I have, made it a regular practice, almost weekly, to talk about where, where are our kids at spiritually, and then on an annual or semi-annual basis, where are we headed together as a, as a family, realizing that um, our kids are not put into a neutral world. I'm not in a neutral world. You're not in a neutral world, and there's gravitational pulls that are happening all the time. So, so what's, the, what's the intentional plan, and then what's, what's our vision? Like, what do we want them to look like? Not physically, but I mean spiritually. Like, what are the what are the things that we want to have coming out of their lives? So I think that's a really important thing. If you're a, a dad, can I just speak into you? One of the things that scares me to death are passive fathers. It's a dangerous world to have a passive dad. Just kind of walking through life, I don't know, they'll figure it out on their own. It's a, it's a dangerous perspective. So I think intentionality really matters when it comes to a child's spiritual growth, but I also think, that's on the personal end, on the pastoral end, I think intentionality matters as it relates to the church. Because the same gravitational forces that pull my kids are the same gravitational forces that you've dealt with all week. You've, you've dealt with temptations, you've, you've had lies communicated to you, even outside in the world, the flesh, the devil, all these things have communicated various things to you, and the question is whether or not not that you've heard it, 
but whether or not you've listened and internalized and if that's affected kind of where you are today. So this morning what we're talking about is this idea of intentional spiritual growth or intentional disciple making. And our aim today is to think about this word grow and how do we create an environment where we're really helping you and you're helping one another to grow spiritually. And then for that matter, what exactly do we mean by spiritual growth? What does that look like? How does that happen? And what is the plan to see that become a reality in all of our lives? Now last week we talked about the matter of belong and particularly I spent some time talking about the broken belonging and I hope that you kind of saw the culture differently this week. That you saw the broken belonging that's all over the place. I've spent a fair amount of time in particular just putting my arm around some African American brothers and sisters and just telling them, man, I don't understand, but I love you and I'm part of what you're a part of and I belong, we belong together. And I hope that you just understand that there's a broken belonging and then there's a church belonging and that church belonging is greater than any other belonging and that you communicate, especially on these next number of days, weeks, who knows how long, but affirm your love um, to one another because that broken belonging is so painful. In fact, I've, I, I've felt sad in my own soul about how my belonging to my own culture, my, my white his history informs how I see everything and there's a brokenness that's embedded in how I see the world. And I'm so grateful that there's another kind of belonging and the belonging in the church. So the aim it's for us to move from what it means to belong to what it means to grow and to have us to do that intentionally. This morning, our Next Generations ministry started, and I presume that many of you have your kids in our children's ministry, which is awesome, and I'm so grateful that you're, you're doing that. If I could just encourage you to take one other step, so put them in our children's ministry because we want to help you intentionally disciple them. Could I also just issue a challenge? Come to first service, worship as a family, and then put them in Sunday school, leave this service and go earlier or later, not because of space needs, but because here, children need to understand what it means to gather in a corporate body. They need to know what it means to belong. And part of the reason why I think some kids leave when they get to high school and college is because they've not known what it's like to worship with people other than their own little tribe of kids. So our children's ministry's aim is to help you disciple your children. We don't just provide childcare. Our aim is to help them understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So when you pick your kids up, be sure you thank people over the next number of weeks. Thank you for helping me disciple my kids. So what does it mean to grow? What does it mean to follow after Jesus? Our, our mission is igniting a passion to follow Jesus. This morning in Colossians 1, we're going to unpack four different aspects of how spiritual growth happens, what it means, and what our vision, frankly, is for spiritual growth. And how does that connect, in particular, to the person and work of Jesus? So the first of these in Colossians chapter one is this. We see that the source of spiritual growth is directly connected not to a program, not to a strategy, not to a theology, not to a church, but that spiritual growth is directly connected to a person and that person's name is Jesus. So you could summarize, like the, the whole sermon today is essentially for you to get that one point 
to get that in your mind, in your soul, in your affections, so that when you go out into the world this next week, that when things come across your path, you're like, no, 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 I love Jesus. I love Jesus, and I wanna show you why he's so central to this idea of spiritual growth. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So what Paul is doing here is helping this church at Colossae understand that spiritual growth happens in Jesus. Go to Colossians chapter two and verse eight. This is not the only place where he uses this kind of language, in particular the language of in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In verse eight he says this, and he's giving them a warning because these people were believing that there was something more to spiritual growth than Jesus. They were kind of leaving their affections for Jesus and they were adding other things, things that were like really smart, things that made sense, things that other people believed, and Paul warns them, you're, you're leaving the central reality of spiritual growth, which is Jesus, verse eight, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Verse nine, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him. So what does he mean that in him the whole fullness of deity dwells? He means this, that there is, no, there is nothing more godlike than Jesus. He is God, he was God. When he says that for, in verse nine, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, it means that Jesus is the full expression of godliness. You don't need to look anywhere else to discover what godliness looks like, that Jesus is the full expression of God's glory. He's the source of everything we know about God's glory because he was fully God. The Apostle John said that we have seen his glory Glory is the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. So he's the source because he's God. He's also the source because he's the centerpiece of redemption. Look at what verse 20 says. And through him, notice how Christocentric this is, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is essentially the gospel. So if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian and you're trying to figure out either the claims of Christ or what's the Bible about or what do I do with my guilt because of the things that I've done wrong, here's, here's the answer. The Bible tells us that saving sinful human beings takes place because of the death and life of Jesus. But without Jesus, there, there is no forgiveness because no one else could pay the penalty of our sin. Jesus took our sin on himself so that we could receive the grace and mercy that comes because of him. So that's why the centerpiece of Christianity is Jesus. Grace comes through him, and grace is the means of coming to him. So grace isn't effective without him. It is all about Jesus. Now, now we don't have time to un unpack this. I could go to passage after passage after passage. I was tempted to do that. For that matter, the, the entire New Testament sort of 
unfolds the centrality of Jesus. Here's my question, though, and here's why I'm raising this point at the very beginning. When you think about spiritual growth, do you think about it in terms of Jesus-centeredness? By that, I mean, do you understand that spiritual transformation comes from him, and it comes through him, and it is to him? As you think about spiritual growth, when I say even the words spiritual growth, where does your mind go? When you think about spiritual growth, if you're a parent and you have children and you want your kids to grow spiritually, well, what does that look like? Does that just mean they don't do all the bad things that they're not supposed to do? Does that mean that they, 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 they know information about the Bible? I mean, what, is, what does spiritual growth really mean? Does, does that mean that you're involved in some church program? Does it mean that there's a, a list of things that you you don't do, is that what spiritual growth means? Does, does it mean that you're just sinning less? Now all those things are true at one level, but they're not the complete picture. At the end of the day, if we think about spiritual growth, it has to be centered on Jesus. At the end of the day, you know what I want for my children? I don't want them looking like me. Because my practice of Christianity is incomplete. I was having a conversation with one of my sons a, a year or so ago. We were talking about just kind of familial sin patterns. And we were laughing that he was wrestling with some of the same things that I struggle with at times. And I said to him, not laughing like we were making light of it, we were laughing about the fact that, yeah, like you're going to have to figure this out. And what we laughed at was I said to him, you know, my hope is, is that by the time that you have children, Maybe they'll be godly people. <laughs> See, you laughed. That's why we laughed. So that was the point. The point is this, is that I, I'm not the complete picture of spirituality. At the end of the day, I want them to look like Jesus. Pastorally, what do I want you to look like? I don't want you to look like our pastors. I want you to look like Jesus. That at the end of the day, when we meet in glory and we see him, that we will marvel that we not only are there, that we're there together, and that we are able to behold the beautiful glory of who and what he is. That's the goal. That's what we're striving for. It is that Jesus is how spiritual growth is possible. Jesus is the means by which spiritual growth takes place. Jesus is the goal of spiritual growth, and he's the source of spiritual growth. So spiritual growth, at the end of the day, is about a person, about a about the Son of God. But when I use the words grow and spiritual growth, is, is that where you immediately go? In the same way that it would make no sense if I talk about marriage, but I never talk about Sarah, my wife. It'd be odd. Something would be wrong if I talked about the institution of marriage, the foundations of marriage, the benefits of marriage, the ingredients of making a good marriage, the commitment of marriage, at the neglect of talking about my wife. Marriage is wonderful because of a woman in my life named Sarah. There's a song written about her. <laughs> Sarah, <laughs> storms are brewing in your eyes. Remember that? A little 80s throwback music for you this morning, all right? So, so the, the point is it's about a person. It's about a person. Marriage is about her. She has a name. And listen to me. Spiritual growth is about a person, and he has a name. His name is Jesus. And our aim, even right now, is that you become like him. 
Because he's the source of everything. He's the essence of our joy. He's the means of our transformation. He's the one who rescued us from our sins. And at the end of the day, the goal of the church is for people to look like him. It's unbelievable. The plan in verse 21, here's the second aspect. He says, there's a, there's a plan that God is working out. What is this plan? He says, and you who once were, and he uses three words. He describes what you were like. This is, if you're a Christian, this is what you were like before you came to Christ. If you're not a Christian, this is the language that the Bible uses to describe where you are right now, and it fits. I'll explain to you how it fits in a moment. He says this, you were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Let's start with the easiest one to understand, evil deeds. We all know what that is. We, we, we did things that we knew were wrong. No one had to tell us they were wrong. We knew they were wrong. We did them anyways, and we did them because, here's why, at the end of the day, because we don't want someone telling us what to do. Every little thing that we do that we know is outside of God's will, we do because we're like, I don't care about your rules. I'm in charge. I'm gonna say what I want. I'm gonna do what I want. I'm gonna act like I want because I want what I want because I'm the center of my universe. That's the heart of a human being at their core. Don't believe it? Did you teach your kids how to say mine? Like that's just hardwired. So doing evil deeds, secondly, hostile in mind, it means that, that we have this, this, this natural condition where we think anti-God thoughts, even if you don't believe that God exists. The reason you have that thought is because you don't want a creator who can define right and wrong. We have anti-God thoughts. There's this, this broken, hardwired dynamic within us where we, we want autonomy. And then alienated. Oh, that's a word. Here's what it means. It means that our, our sinful motives and our actions are a fruit of the fact that we are lost. That's how the Bible describes that. We're lost. We, we don't know God's language. We don't know the land that we live in. And we don't know what to do about it. That's, that's the tragedy of our condition. You ever, been, you ever been an alien? Ever felt alienated? Ever felt lost? It's a deeply alarming feeling, isn't it? This summer, one of our sons was studying Spanish in Spain, and so for our 24th wedding anniversary, I took my wife to go visit him and just to spend some time over there in the city of Valencia. Because I'm cheap, I bought one-way tickets, not one-way, I bought uh, direct flight, non-stop tickets, I meant, from Chicago to Madrid, and then I was gonna take a train from Madrid to Valencia because it was cheaper. But I had to be able to make it from the Madrid airport to the train station, Google told me it was gonna take me 15 minutes. I left myself two hours, no problem, big problem. <laughs> I got there, had my ticket, got to the train station. We had about seven minutes to find where the train was gonna leave. And I'm walking around this train station assuming that there would be people there who would know English. Because in my broken belonging, I think the whole world knows English, right? So there's gotta be somebody there. And on my ticket it says Plaza D, which surely means 
that it's gate D. That's what it has to be, because plaza, it's a place, okay, it's D. So I'm walking around, I'm finding anyone I can find, a security guard, a nice person, anybody who's smiling, saying, what's plaza D? And they're going, go over here, and so they go over there, and he says, go over there, so I go over there, and they say, go over there, back and forth, and back, and no one knows English that I can find, no one knows what plaza means, until finally some, some woman who spoke broken English said to me, rather in a snarky tone, which I didn't appreciate, even in her, in her <laughs> sweet Spanish accent, she said, Plaza means seat on the train. <laughs> and I just wanted to go, I don't know where I, I, I just wanted to, somebody help me, you know, somebody help me. And finally we figured it out, we missed the train, I had to buy additional tickets, it ended up costing me more money than it did to just go ahead and get the connecting flights, you know what I'm saying? So what, what the feeling was in that moment though was being absolutely lost. I don't know the language, I don't know where to go, and everything around me just communicates, you're not from here. And what the Bible says is that's exactly the spiritual condition that some people are in. Most of people in the world are in. They don't know what's wrong with their soul, they don't know how to stop doing things that they know they shouldn't do, they don't know what the solution is, and the beautiful thing is that the Bible says this is the natural condition of man, and then somebody steps into the middle of it in order to bring them out. And guess who that person is? Jesus. Look what the text says. And you were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Now notice, he has reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. And notice this, friends, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So it's not just that Jesus enters the equation and tells you where to go. No, 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 he does something even better. He steps in and takes alienated, hostile, and evil-doing deeds sorts of people, and he steps in and has the power and the ability to make them holy, to make them completely righteous, to make them blameless, that they're free from every fault, and they have a standing of complete righteousness before God, and it means that they are above reproach, which means when the enemy would dare step into the equation and go, these people are wicked sinners, Jesus steps up and says, I know, and I paid for them. It's not the fact that your sins aren't true. So when the, the devil accuses you of your sin issues, you ought to say, oh yes, that is true, and so much more. My hope is not in the absence of my sin. No, my hope is in the presence of the sin bearer whose name is Jesus. So the question is, is that how you understand spiritual growth? Verse 23 connects it even further, and it says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This doesn't mean that your salvation is conditional on you remaining stable and steadfast. He's not saying that your position of holiness or your position of blamelessness is something that you create or you maintain. Instead, what he's saying is this, that when you understand the beauty of what Jesus rescued you from and when you understand the miracle of the fact that he is now making you holy and blameless, he's making you above reproach, that when you see and savor that, it has an effect on how you live every single day. Not perfect but it has an effect. Let me prove this to you. As you're sitting here and you're listening to a sermon and I'm telling you beautiful things about Jesus, are you not in some real way less tempted by all the other things that you normally would be? 
As I talk about the beauty of who and what Christ is, something within your heart says, yes, that's true, yes, that's true, yes, that's true. And the effect of that is that then when you go out into the world, that something comes across your path that the enemy would say, this is true, come after this. You could say, no, I know about that and I love Jesus more. He is far better and more glorious. That's what it means that you understand the gospel, you celebrate the beauty of it, and as a result, it provides a level of assurance to your soul. In other words, Spiritual growth for a believer, then, is central to God's plan. God is on a mission to make all of us righteous, both positionally and practically. I trust that you know that's what God's plan is. That's what the aim of even you're listening to this sermon is, is not just for you to know intellectual things about the gospel, but to live in that gospel then the rest of the week, to be able to apply the gospel in your lives and to realize that the plan is not just eternal security. The plan is not just so you know where you're gonna go when you die. The plan is that there's a real, tangible righteousness that you're able to embrace even now. But here's my question. Do you know that's what God's plan is? And do you love that plan to make you righteous? And are you leaning into that plan and say, I want to be more like Jesus this week than what I was last week. I want to help my family, my kids. I want to help my other friends and my, my small group. I want to help them to become like Jesus because that's what the goal is, that we end up looking like him. So, the source, the plan, the means. So how does this happen? Look at verse 28. The third aspect here of spiritual growth is the means. Where does this come from? Verse 28, Paul says this. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. So verse 28 comes after verse 27, which says... To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What's the mystery? Here's the mystery. The mystery is, don't, don't just read these words. You have to savor them. The mystery is this. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's a mind-blowing reality. The, the risen Christ provides within you the hope of glory. What glory? The very glory that you were separated from by virtue of your sin now becomes your glory because Christ brings you back to that glory. He's the means by which you are reconciled to God. And as a result, the means by which spiritual growth happens is the proclamation of this person named Jesus, which is why he says, him we proclaim. Now at one level, this means evangelism talking about Jesus to those who've never heard him or received him, but at another level, it means that we rehearse the gospel. That for those of you who are Christians, that you rehearse the gospel to one another. That you are, as according to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That there's supposed to be this progressive work of more and more of the glory of Christ in you. That you begin to take the gospel and you push it into the various arenas of your life. But the gospel affects parenting. It affects money. It affects singleness. The gospel affects racial issues, the gospel affects sexuality, the gospel affects how you think about church, the gospel affects how you think about dying, the gospel affects 
how you think about your career. Paul says we're to warn people. Him we proclaim, warning everyone. Warning them about what? Warning them about coming judgment, for one. That's what Peter said at Pentecost, that this Jesus whom you crucified is alive and he's coming back. So just on Monday, when you see the eclipse that happens, just remember that there's going to come a day when everything we know is going to blow that out of the world. And our king is going to return, and every eye will see him. And maybe it's tomorrow. Wouldn't that be awesome? <laughs> and I hope your answer is yes. I'm not saying, and I built a little shack for us on a mountain. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is this, that you ought to approach every day with the sense of maybe today, maybe today. But there's some of us who are so beholden to this world that your immediate thought is, no, I hope not. I want to get married. Well, I want to have kids. Or I, I need to clean some stuff up. And not your room, like your life. And so we're to warn people about coming judgment, but we're also to warn one another about believing and living in another gospel. This is what Paul said to the church at Galatia. He warned them that they were believing another gospel. He said, you ought not to believe another gospel, even if an angel showed up and started preaching that gospel to you. So you might say, well, Mark, how do I believe another gospel? Listen, you believe another gospel when you believe the lies that come from the devil or from your own heart. You, you believe a, a, another gospel when you start to think that your performance is what makes you acceptable to God. You believe lies when accusations are hurled at you by your own depravity or by the enemy, and you begin to think, oh, my spiritual, my spiritual growth depends upon me. See, we can trust in what we're doing instead of what Jesus did. Friend, you can trust in a program at church. Somebody wants to grow spiritually, and you're like, here, get in my program, because my program will help you grow spiritually. Your program may be good, but if Jesus isn't there, it's not only not helpful, it's actually counterproductive to the gospel. You might say, well, read this book. If that book doesn't talk about Jesus, then there's really, there's no point counseling strategy, you may have the best verses that can help a person change, but if Jesus doesn't make those verses get into a person's heart, and if Jesus isn't the ultimate hero in the story, then all you've done is just make them trust the Bible instead of trusting in Jesus. Or a philosophy of ministry, I could go on and on and on. The point is this, no matter where it is that you are living out your Christian life, you need to remind yourself over and over and over that you live by promise, not by performance. When your kids are disobedient, do you just want them to stop being disobedient? And is that all that you tell them? Do you just tell them, stop it, stop doing that? Because at the end of the day, what you want is to modify their behavior. Well, you know what that is? That's a false gospel. Should they stop? Sure. But is that all they should stop? No, they should stop and they should understand how that connects to the penalty, the problem of sin, and how our only hope is Christ. Otherwise, what you'll do is you'll just raise self-trusting legalists 
who think that Christianity essentially is just not doing the wrong things and trying to do the right things and doing it in my own strength. And you'll end up creating children whose understanding of the gospel is devoid of Jesus. And when it's devoid of Jesus, it's devoid of power, it's devoid of meaning, and it's devoid of efficacy, meaning it doesn't work. And then when your children disobey and you look bad and you think, oh, these people think terribly of me and what do they think about me? So you get bitter, you get angry, you get all insecure and get worried. All those thoughts that are going on inside of you, you know what those are? Those are a false gospel. You think your worth is determined by what people think of you and as a result, that's becoming a functional God instead of saying, you know what? What matters to me is what Jesus thinks of me. So I'm gonna love them and I'm gonna rest in the finished work of Christ. That's how you live in the gospel. Spiritual growth only happens as we proclaim the beauty of the finished work of Christ. So we're to warn and we're to teach everyone with all wisdom, which means that we take our situations in life and we figure out how do we apply the gospel to these situations that come up in our lives. For some of you, that's a really, unfortunately, a new thought. You thought that the gospel was what you believed when you came to Christ, and after that you left the gospel behind, when the reality is you don't leave faith behind. You don't leave the gospel behind. Instead, you live out the gospel in every arena of your life. That The more you grow in Christ's likeness, the evident display of Jesus shows up as the gospel becomes even more and more operative in your life in so many ways. Jeff Anderstelt, the author of Gospel Fluency, a great book that talks about how do we massage the gospel into our lives. We commend it, commend it to you. He encourages small group leaders to think about four key questions when problems arise in their group. In other words, someone throws a problem in the midst. Like, hey, we got a marriage issue. I got a problem at work. We got problems with our kids. And rather than just everybody piling on, suddenly trying to solve that with their opinions, their ideas, hey, I heard this on the radio, what about this, we thought about that. Instead, he says, don't forget about these four questions. Number one, how does the gospel bring good news to the situation? Question number one, how does the gospel bring good news to the situation? Your hopelessness, how does the gospel speak into this? You're struggling, how does the gospel speak into this? Secondly, what about the gospel do we need to hear right now? So what aspect of the gospel should be applied and maybe even spoken to this brother or sister about what's happening in their life? See, one of the reasons that you need to be involved in some kind of group is you need somebody at some point in time to speak the gospel to you. You need someone to say, listen, be reminded of this, my brother or sister. Third, what about the gospel have we forgotten or failed to believe? See, there are all kinds of things that we, we, can, we can forget about the gospel, we can forget about the centrality of tri- Christ. And then question number four, and I love this question. Hope this question stays with you. How is Jesus better than what we have or what we want? So you wanted to be thought as a good parent, and your kids blew it in front of all those people. So you wanted to be the person that everybody thought was successful. You got passed over for your job. So you wanted this guy's affection, and he broke up with you, and now you're alone again. So those are the things that you want, and it's understandable that you're sad about those things, but at the end of the day, is Jesus better than those things, and how is he better? Friends, that's the essence of what it means to apply the gospel. And for some of you, that's what you've forgotten even this last week. While you're a believer in Jesus, Are there some areas of your life this week where you've lived as if you've forgotten the gospel? Can I just remind you that Jesus and the gospel are the means by which spiritual growth happens? That's why Paul says, him we proclaim. Him 
we proclaim, warning and teaching everyone. Finally, we come to the purpose. So what's, what is the, what's the aim? Where is spiritual growth headed? What's the intentionality of all of this? Look at verse 28. That we may present everyone mature in Christ. There it is. That's it. That's the goal. There it is. Right there. The aim, the goal of spiritual growth, the aim of church, the aim of worship, the aim of preaching, the aim of programming, the aim of Bible studies, the aim of parenting, the aim of anything that you do in your walk with Christ is so that at the end of the day, when the smoke of history clears, people look like Jesus. That's the goal. That we display the, 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 the evident beauty of who and what he is like. The word mature means complete. It means perfect. The idea is we, we push away the things that don't look like Jesus. And we embrace the things that look like him. We don't look at things that don't fit with Jesus. We look at things and we read things that fit with Jesus. We don't say things that don't fit with Jesus. We only say things that fit with the work of Jesus. We don't love things that don't fit with who Jesus is. He's king, he's Lord. In fact, a very effective strategy that I found in my own life, and I hope you will use this this week as some temptation comes across your path. The question at that moment is this, is he king or not? Is he king? Then I'm putting away damnable actions and damnable thoughts and damnable images because those are the things that create damnation. Those are the things that create the judgment of God. I want the things that fit with the finished work of Jesus and so I set my heart on those things and I tell the works of the darkness. Jesus is king. So what does this look like? I could give you so many examples throughout the New Testament. Just read your Bible. You'll see it all over the place of what this looks like. But here's a few. Romans 8, 13 says we put the deeds, the sinful deeds, we put to death, rather, the sinful deeds of the body. We kill sin. Galatians 5, it means that we walk by the Spirit. Ephesians or Colossians 3, 5 to 9, it means that we defeat the works of the flesh. We put off Listen to me, we put away these kinds of things. Sexual immorality. Jesus is better than sexual immorality. Impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. Jesus is better than what you think that thing is gonna give you. Anger, wrath, malice, slander. Jesus is better than us getting up above other people by slandering them or using anger to try and push them down. No, I can rest in him. Obscene talk and lying. So Jesus is better than all of those things. See, part of the problem is when you fall into these, you forget either accidentally or willingly the surpassing beauty and value of Jesus. We embrace the fruit of the Spirit, like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We, we em- endure under trial, knowing that God's plans are good for us, according to James chapter 1 and verse 4. We 
According to Ephesians 4, we work to maintain the unity of the body of Christ because we love Jesus and his body more than our individual preferences or the way that we think things should be or what my opinions are. We love Jesus more than we love ourselves. And it means that we can joyfully focus on the future, not trusting in some past spiritual experience. If I were to ask you about your spiritual life, oh friend, you better not have a history that starts like a year ago. Well, a year ago I was walking with Christ, but and so somehow you're trusting in that. Or yeah, when I was seven, I received Christ, but there's been no spiritual growth. That means that, man, if that if there's no spiritual growth, then was that decision even real? Paul said, forgetting what lies behind, I press forward to what lies ahead, the upward call of Christ. The point is this, is that simply over time, we look more and more like Jesus in real and practical ways. So let me ask you three questions. First, do you know Jesus? Are you a Christian? Have you trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Oh, friend, I hope that you have. Doesn't matter what you've done, where you've been. As I describe being lost in Spain, that describes some of you today. You're lost, you don't know up from down, and can I just help you to see there is a true north in life. His name is Jesus, he's the only one who can take the God longing within your soul, forgive you of the guilt that you feel, and be able to make you a new person, and that can happen today. And I pray that today will be the day that you receive Jesus. Why would you wait one more day? Secondly, if you're a Christian, how would you describe your spiritual growth right now? Is it struggling, is it thriving? Are you faking it? There's some of you here, you come, you bring your Bible, you smile, you know what to do, you know the walk, you know the talk, you know how to even sit in a service so people think you're okay, but the bottom line is behind the veil, you are faking it. And it's time for you to pull the veil up and say, I need to be like Jesus. And finally, what would it take for you, third, if you are a follower of Jesus, that even more that you would look like Jesus in the next six months? What tangible action step do you need to take today in order to facilitate greater spiritual growth in life so that you would be able to say, you know, I, I wanna be like Jesus. I mean, I really wanna be like Jesus. And my statement to you would be, wonderful. So therefore what? I want us to join together and realize that intentional spiritual growth means that at the end of the day, there's one person, one reality, one source, one means, one plan, it's a person. His name is Jesus, and he calls us to be like him. And that's what spiritual growth is. Pray together. Lord, my words in this sermon and our time together in worship will do nothing unless you empower it by your spirit. So would you do that now? And as we consider the Lord's table, would you use this moment to cement these truths into our hearts? And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.